welcome to the Law Deals Podcast, where we discuss law firm succession plans, profitable law partnerships, and law firm purchases and sales. I'm your host, Ed Alexander. I practice transactional business law for 30 years, have my own practice, Alexander Business Law, and I'm a principal with Fitzgibbon Alexander, a business intermediary firm. We're on a mission to make sales of law firms commonplace so you can enjoy your practice and your life. Hello and welcome to the Law Deals Podcast, where we discuss law firm succession plans, partnerships, purchases, and sales. In this first episode, I'm going to answer three important questions. Who the heck am I? Why Law Deals? Why this podcast? And what you can expect by listening to this podcast. So let's get into it. Who am I? I'm Ed Alexander. I'm a third career lawyer. I grew up on Long Island and moved to Florida about 30 years ago. In my first career, I was a systems engineer. I designed software and integrated circuits. This was in the mid-1980s, and the country was going through a conversion from analog to digital. And you would see this typically in automobile, where previously you had these mechanical systems, and we were converting them over into what you would call today the computer system that you use. And in that capacity, you know, I would go out and take trips with salespeople to customers. The A to D conversion, these integrated circuits that we created were specific to a customer application. And so the salespeople would effectively go out and visit with the customer to determine what their needs were. And I would tag along. And part of the benefit here was salespeople would get to see which of the engineers had the capability to actually communicate with customers. And so I really enjoyed this because I got the opportunity to talk with customer engineers and also customer business people and uh, really gave me a first taste of what customer relations is all about, you know, kind of this technical sales via education and mutual problem solving. So After doing this for a couple of years, I decided I wanted to go into sales. I approached the company and I said, hey, you know, I'd like to transition into a sales role. But they informed me that the company didn't hire engineers in sales. So as a result, I basically said, you know what, I'm going to go find a new job. This isn't working for me. So that's when I moved into my second career. And I got a new job as a product marketing manager for a technology company. And, you know, because of my technology and experience and my ability to understand technology, they essentially trained me on the marketing part because they really needed somebody who understood the technical part. So in that role, I was supporting sales and I would go out and basically the same thing I did with the salespeople when I wasn't designing circuits. At the prior job, I would go out with salespeople and try and make deals. And so eventually, you know, I'd be traveling the country and putting all these deals together. This was kind of the later part of the 80s or, you know, 87, 88 time period. And boy, did I have a lot of airline miles. And uh, Faith and I actually traveled to Hawaii uh, first class on airline miles alone. So uh, that tells you how much I was actually traveling across the country. 
So in that capacity, I also dealt with in-house legal counsel. Uh, the company that I worked for was a uh, listed on New York Stock Exchange, uh, you know, probably a Fortune 1000, maybe Fortune 2000 company at the time. And in that capacity of dealing with the lawyers, I decided, hey, this is pretty interesting stuff. You know, they did cool work. And so I decided to go to law school. So not being able to just stop work, I ended up going to law school at night. There was a school right there on Long Island, and I would travel during the day. I would come back into LaGuardia in New York early evening, and I would hightail it over to Huntington where my law school was. And so it was a time of very little sleep, but luckily I was in my late 20s and I certainly can do it. Now, the company where I worked, the management there thought I was insane because everybody else was going for, you know, MBAs, Masters in Business Administration. And, you know, they wondered why I went to law school. I looked at it as though it were a super MBA and figured that, you know, all of the things that the MBAs learned I could pick up along the way, but I wouldn't be able to pick up the legal component along the way. So after I graduated law school, I started the third career, the career I'm in now, a lawyer. At first, I was in-house counsel. I joined the technology company I'd been working for. And because of that technical background, they put me in a patent position. You know, I mean, it was cool at first, but the reality is I liked making deals. I liked dealing with people. I liked traveling and meeting new people and kind of making things work. Um, but in this new role, I was sitting in a 12 by 12 office all day writing invention descriptions. So after six months, my mind was melting and I just could not do it anymore. So I approached general counsel and, you know, said, hey, I, I'm really looking for something different. Um, he informed me that they didn't have any other positions, but they would keep me in mind the next time a position came up. So. I decided it probably was best for me to get a new job, and uh, Faith uh, had asked that I find a job in Florida. Now, luckily, I was licensed both in Florida and in New York, so that was a possibility. So I set about looking for a job in Florida, and I ended up uh, working for a corporate transactional and commercial litigation firm. Uh, they also did real estate as well, <clears throat> and that was here in Orlando. And so, nice small firm, uh, really great people. I just totally enjoyed this place. The problem was that the firm broke up uh, 18 months after I got there. It turns out that the partners couldn't really make any money together. It was very difficult for them to do that. The market had changed. They had really been formed around doing a particular type of investment vehicle. And then that investment vehicle went away with the Tax Act of 86. So a lot of their business started to crater. And by the time I got there, it was really, really at the end. So after that firm closed, I went with two of the other partners over to the next law firm, which did mostly commercial litigation and some transactional. Um, unfortunately, that firm broke up four months later, and that is a classic example of a partnership that shouldn't have been. The parties had never sat down to really think about what partnership meant to them and what their expectations were. So pretty much from the opening moment of that partnership, uh, the deal went bad. And so four months later, they just called it quits. And so I was out of a job again for the second time uh, in only four months. And so um, I know it was a very stressful time when the firm broke up 
the last time because it wasn't uh, really sure whether I would go with these uh, two partners or not. And so I decided it was probably best to tell Faith in person. Now, I remember this event very distinctly because uh, she was at a, a mommy and me event. And we had two daughters. My daughters at that time were an infant and four-year-old. I decided, you know, hey, the uncertainty is too much. Everything's going to be fine. I think I'm going to go out and start my own practice. So this would be the you know entrepreneurial seizure that you read about in the Emeth book. I had the entrepreneurial seizure, basically saying, "Hey, these guys can't run a law firm. I'm going to give it a try. Maybe I'm smarter than that." And you know the other issue is between all this uncertainty, I'd had a really good job in New York. And there was stability. I was making good money. There were lots of benefits. And all of a sudden, now I come down to this uh, situation where uh, these firms are cratering underneath me. So really, starting out, I was extremely lucky. And I am absolutely grateful for three fateful things that uh, helped me along the way. From the time I started in Orlando, I had really gone out and tried to meet a lot of people. And so I developed a small book of business. Uh, one of my clients turned out was selling his business just at the time that these that the second firm had started to go out of business, and he went with me to my new firm. So that really helped for a long time because there was a lot of work to do in that transaction. Now. Once I let the world know that I was starting my own firm, there was another lawyer that I knew who suggested a place where I can get an office. It was absolutely great. It was a cheap office, a beautiful building, but a small little teeny office you know, in the back. And another lawyer there was an older gentleman. He actually ended up being my legal mentor. He fed me business, but he really helped me learn a lot about uh, lawyering. A really good guy, and I'm very grateful to him for that. At the same time, I also had a business coach who took me under her wing and really helped me create a thriving practice. And one of the key elements that she taught me was building uh, the practice through systemized referral marketing relationships. And ultimately, you know, this ended up being such an important benefit for me long term because I really got to know people in the community and it's paid off over and over again. Now, my practice has had ups and downs and detours along the way, including me going in-house with a client whose business was nearly destroyed during a downturn and working with another small firm that merged into a larger firm. Both of those things ultimately didn't work out. But since 2005, I've been in my current configuration, and so as I record this, that's 18 and a half years. And in 2006, I formed a business brokerage with a partner of mine, Matt Fitzgibbon, and we still own that today. We use that, obviously, as a, a brokerage, but also from the law firm perspective, as a vehicle for getting broker pricing opinions, so the getting a business owner or lawyer or small solo or small firm lawyer the ability to know what their business is generally worth. This is not a full-blown appraisal, but it gives them an idea. And it helps us market law firms and other businesses to outside buyers. Having the brokerage as a side vehicle really has been more beneficial than I suspected. When I formed it, I thought there would be great referrals from it, but the reality is I've been able to use it to create a one-stop shop for law firm sales. So 
a law firm can come to us and work with us both as the broker, if there's an outside sale, as a broker giving them a pricing opinion, and then ultimately on the law firm side. But if you look at the, the thing that's running through all of this is one big theme. It's the thing that I've done for 40 years, and that's put deals together. Now, today, things are a little bit different because I'm going to focus on financials. I focus on making sure parties' expectations are aligned. I want these deals to work for the long term because both parties are dependent on that working. And I now have the view that documents are merely a tool to get the uh, transaction done so the parties can, can move forward. Now, with respect to the firm, I really tried to live what I preach. I take long vacations. Uh, we've taken month-long vacations over the past two years. I take weekends and holidays off. Not every weekend because I like what I do and sometimes I want to do that, but most weekends and holidays off. I set aside time for my health and exercise. I absolutely positively love biking and will bike into the work and bike anywhere I can at any point in time and I make time in the firm for that. And I'm really trying to build a business that works whether I'm in the office or not. These themes are going to be reflected in this podcast because it's really absolutely imperative that lawyers take the approach of making sure that they are taken care of and their teams are taken care of so that they can take care of their clients. I firmly believe that if you're not in a good state for yourself, you will not be able to deliver the best service for your clients. And that's what I live. Overall, I absolutely love practicing law and I love working in my firm. It's absolutely not perfect. It's like anything else in the world. There are good times and there are bad times. But overall, the good times outweigh the bad times. So why did I start law deals? Well, there's a couple of things that led me to this. I found in my practice that matters come in groups. You know, I'll get several business or law firm sales together, or I'll get several partnerships, partner agreements to put together, or I'll get a partnership disputes or succession plans. And it just seems like they come in and maybe there's three or four or five of them that all come in at once. Now, I really try to notice trends because trends help me focus on marketing activities. They help me fix the internal systems and they present opportunities. And so a few years back, I received a lot of referrals of lawyers looking to sell their firms. And as I was in that process, I realized something that I had assumed that wasn't the case. And that is most lawyers don't know the first thing about selling or buying a firm or creating a partnership and that they make the same mistakes that other business owners make. But there's really more at stake, right? Because in a law practice, we uh, have ethical rules. And one of those rules is specifically talks about practice sales. And so that you have to comply with it. It's an obligation. And there's some, you know, important uh, steps that have to be baked into an agreement to make sure that compliance is there. So, you know, it's at the end of the day, I'm looking at these and saying, oh my gosh, there are people who are taking this on and really don't know what they're doing. So then about the same time, 
uh, had a transaction with a pack and ship store. Uh, the owners of the store were looking to retire. The lease was coming up, so they decided to close the business. They let their CPA know this, and the CPA correctly identified that, hey, they were destroying a whole bunch of value, that the actual business had value, and they might want to consider selling it. Uh, the CPA referred these business owners to my partner, Matt, and he essentially took that business and was able to sell it in like 90 days. And they received a six-figure bump to their retirement accounts. So by looking to close the business, they would have lost at least 100 and more than $100,000 out of this practice. So they took that money and they were able to put it into their retirement fund. And if nothing else, if their retirement fund was fully funded, they got a couple of really nice vacations out of it. What basically that taught me was, hey, wait a second, business owners, lawyers alike, do not see the value in their business. Now, there's another situation, and I talk about this in the Guide to Selling Your Florida Law Practice, the book that I wrote. Uh, you can get that at lawpracticeexits.com. It's a free download. Uh, a lawyer had approached me. He had what I consider to be approximately a $500,000 practice. And he was telling me that you know he had two options. He was either going to sell, and that's why he was talking to me about what the sell process would look like, or he'd received an offer from a large firm, and he could join that large firm and and fold his practice into that firm. Now, I asked whether he would receive any money for folding his practice into that firm, and the answer was no. He would receive origination credit for new matters that came into the firm from those clients, but at the end of the day, he would receive nothing else but that, and he could work as long as he wanted. And so I kind of discussed this a little really in detail in the book. But the bottom line is this plus the pack and ship store plus some of the other transactions really led me to the view that, you know, lawyers really don't understand the value that's in their practice. And so, you know, the goal of this entire podcast is to set up so you can, number one, improve your practice. Right, because the most important thing is improving your practice so you can enjoy the practice and enjoy your life. But in doing so, you actually create value. It makes the practice saleable if the practice is a true business. Now, many lawyers, unfortunately, own a job and their practices are absolutely not saleable. But we're going to talk about in future episodes what makes a practice saleable. We're going to talk about the four ways that you can exit your practice, including the most popular way, which is selling to an associate or a partner. We're going to identify how much is your practice worth, and we'll show you a back-of-the-napkin approach to getting to that value. We'll talk about the three types of law practices. There are only three types of law practices, and identifying which one you have can really help you from a, a focus of how do I improve this firm? What is the, What are the value drivers, right? We're going to talk about the simple formula for value, and that is cash flow and the likelihood the cash flow will continue in the future. We're going to talk about making time your friend rather than your enemy. And then we're going to talk about professional liability assurance and the sale of your practice because you don't want to go bare when you sell your practice, right? And so there are some options there that you can put in place to keep your protection. 
We're going to talk about the need for a second act and then a whole bunch more. So if you're thinking about, hey, what's the future look like for my practice? What do I need to take into account here so that I have the best exit possible out of my practice? This is the podcast for you. Please subscribe and please use the information to create a practice that you can enjoy so you can enjoy your life as well. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.